Hannah and Eric go birding at the Oregon Zoo. There they talk about condors and see what's new. Well, actually, there was a lot new. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Birding, a podcast for birders by birders. I'm Hannah, and he's Eric. We created this podcast to share our adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have on birding topics. We're definitely not experts. Not at all. And anything that we discuss that might be controversial, we want you to keep an open mind and remember that there are our own opinions. It might be different from yours. It's summer still. Yes. And on the Oregon coast, it's been raining. Yeah, you know, Oregon summer means like 50% chance of rain. Oh so. my gosh, it's been raining so much. It's like winter. <laughs> They've been saying that like the storms we're having are like winter storms. They have felt like winter storms. They have. It's like We didn't get any winter storms in the winter, so I guess if we get them in July, that's <laughs> fair. Sucky. I guess. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, anyways, and I guess the rest of the U.S. is like a heat wave. Seriously, so. I, I saw an article yesterday about uh, crops getting hit during a peak uh, production time for them mm-hmm. right now in the Midwest that it's just like possibly going to decimate crops because of the heat wave and the <sighs> lack awful. of rain. Yeah. But our rain has been great for my wildscape garden. Oh my gosh. And I don't, I don't have to run the sprinklers. I don't have to, I don't have to keep watering any of these like random shrubs that we still haven't gotten rid of yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Hope you guys are all doing well. So do we have bird, bird news? This, I mean, that was weather news. Do we have Do we have bird news? <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> um, yes. So, of course, there's always birds flying here and there. Um, Arizona, just a quick sampling of some of the cool things that are happening in the U.S. Um, Arizona has had buff-collared nightjars, playing cap starthroats, white-eared hummingbirds. So, there's more things, of course, but those are some of the really cool ones. Lots of hummingbirds showing up. We need to get up. to Arizona. I know, seriously. Yeah. I mean... Play cap star throw, white-eared hummingbird. That would be super exciting. Oh my gosh, so much. All three of those would have been lifers for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Um, Alaska, a lot of people have been in Alaska recently, which, you know, generally translates to more things being found. You know, Patagonia, uh, rest stop effect. Oh, we did use one of the Queen's Bird Club <laughs> Patagonia rest stop effect. Hang on, I'm going to look it up because it's super funny. So in the last couple of our episodes, we've quoted uh, Queens County Bird Club, which is up in like the New York area, I'm guessing. Queens. Yeah. Yeah. They came up with uh, the Universal Laws of Birding, and it's on their website, and we've posted it in the show notes of the past. And so since we found it on a Facebook link somebody posted, um, I've been trying to apply those to like our, our adventures that we have and this isn't necessarily one of our adventures but since Eric mentioned it um, and we'd heard this term years ago I don't remember who told us I wonder if it was Jim Bangma it might have been I don't know I think the first time I heard it was down in down in the valley yeah it definitely it, was because they were talking about Falfurris yeah yeah because it's a it's a rest stop you know <laughs> but anyways um, so it's the Patagonia picnic table effect and it says that the pers- Persistence of a rarity at any location leads to more and more rarities being discovered there because of the increased coverage by birders, which that isn't necessarily like what we're talking about with Alaska, but because like it's not like people are rushing up to Alaska to see those things yeah, but specifically. During but the summer, there's more there. Exactly. So it's, it's like kind the of more, the same. It's kind of like the more eyes principle yeah. also. 
But anyways, the Patagonia picnic table effect is one of my favorite things. <laughs> we um, were birding at Quinta Mazatlan a number of years ago, and there was a rare hummingbird that was spotted in one of the coral beans near the house. And uh, broad, broad-billed hummingbird? I think so. Yeah. And as everybody was like searching for it to refind it, they found another rare hummingbird <laughs> that had popped yeah. up. For It was only there for one day. Yeah. The, the other one was. It was the one-day wonder. Yeah. But just... How funny is that? Like, rare birds are probably just everywhere, and you just have to look for them. Yeah, just, we gotta look harder. Yeah. We and so, it, it means that none of these birds are actually rare. They're just always here. We just we just don't notice <laughs> we them. We just never look them. Because we're not, because we're all not that good. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> um, so, Alaska has had falcated duck and slatyback gulls, among many other things that are there. Uh, Florida, white cheek pintail, which I... Wish we would have seen when we were there, but I guess it's more of like a Caribbean bird. So I'm hmm. sure we'll see it someday. I'm sure. Um, smooth-billed Ani, which is something we did see when we were living in Florida. And we saw it down at Frog, Froggy Pond. Froggy Pond. WMA. Yeah. yeah. Lucky Pond. Lucky. Uh, I thought it was Froggy something. There's a frog in there, too. Yeah, some sort of froggy, lucky pond There's situation. like a slash also. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's right it's right next to the Everglades. Yeah. It's, it's down there. It's literally right outside the Everglades door. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a good spot to go look for them. Um, Antillean Palm Swift has also been seen down in that area. Um, you know, Texas, Alaska, Florida, Arizona are always going to have like interesting birds popping up. Yeah. They're, they're at the edges of the country. Exactly. So we've got some cool stuff. Yeah. And so um, a couple other things more inland or away from those big sections tennessee has had an american flamingo is it the one from florida did it <laughs> i don't know I, th- I feel like i had heard somebody there was some discussion i have no idea if there's any credence whatsoever to it but some discussion that the american flamingo is the same one from saint mark's there is i think somebody had posted some pictures trying to compare the um folded wings the mm-hmm. the pattern of the folded wings the wear pattern yeah but I don't know if I think there wasn't very many photos. I have definitely not followed up on it because some people it's have all too the way much over time there. on their hands. Yeah, I I'm not over there, so I don't. It's it is what it is. Well, yeah. So American <laughs> flamingo. Yeah. Um, and in then Tennessee. in Oregon, we've had a red-headed woodpecker that's been on the Oregon coast that was found down by Reedsport. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. We haven't run down to find it. Um, from what I understand, it's super easy to get. I'm not really. We just that, don't have time. I'm sorry. I'm just not that motivated. I, like I've seen them. Well, not 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 even to ch- for me. I, it's not even that I want to chase it because it's a rarity. Yeah. It's I want to chase it because it's a woodpecker. I want I want to <laughs> I want to go see the redheaded woodpecker. It's been months since I've seen a redheaded woodpecker. Oh, so long. It has I, it has nothing to do with that. I don't have it in Coos County. I, <laughs> yeah, I, it is. No, I, I, or that I even have it in Oregon or anything like that. It's, it's a third Oregon record, but it's just a red-headed woodpecker. I'd, I'd like to see another woodpecker again. So just some other bird news. Um, I don't know if you guys were following the Canada goose that was being raised by sandhill cranes, but it died. Yeah. Sadly. It was found at, I think it was on a golf course somewhere in the Midwest, and they, um, like, Woke up one morning and found that it was no longer with the Santo Crane family mm-hmm. and found the poor little baby dead. Yeah, I mean, 
It happens. Yeah. Nature. But then the other funny thing that popped up was that there's a mallard that's being raised by common loon parents, and people have said <laughs> they've seen it trying to dive like a common loon. So that's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's I mean, normally a dabbler. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it'll like learn to be less buoyant. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it'll it'll like swim at the bottom. It'll it'll maybe it'll eat different things than it normally is it, supposed to. It'll mallard. hunt crustaceans and stuff. Yeah, so then like its um, buoyancy will be less. Yeah. like it's fat. It'll 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 change its body chemistry yes. so that it become it'll become a hybrid just science. by just by acting. <laughs> yeah. that, I don't think that makes any sense. <laughs> and That's then some, science something that has been like going viral was that there was a drunk guy that found an injured bird and then he sent it to a rehabber by uber yeah and that was somewhere else in the u.s but please i saw from the portland audubon the other day please do not do that they don't want birds sent to them by uber so if you're an uber driver and you find one and you bring it in i'm sure that'll be okay is that okay as long as you don't pay yourself to do it okay you don't like hire yourself out to do it yeah, I wonder if there's like legality issues with transport, with getting paid to transport. I have no idea. An injured bird. I don't know because some rehabbers they'll um, reimburse mileage for their transporters. That's true. I guess reimbursing mileage could be considered what Uber's getting paid. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Whatever. Just they don't want them though. You know, don't, just don't check, do that. <laughs> check with your local rehabber how they want birds sent to them. Yeah. And then um, last little piece of bird news. Uh, so we've mentioned this before, but looking at our like statistics from previous episodes, um, we do have a lot of listeners that come from the U.S. And that's probably the majority of our listeners come from the U.S. We well, have, we're here, so it's pertinent to the U.S. people. Yeah. Um, we do want to reach out and you know welcome everyone from the world to listen to us. Um, totally understand, though, if you're like, I'm tired of listening to the U.S. and all their news and fancy birds. Fancy birds. <laughs> but there's so much fancier birds everywhere else. I know. Our birds are lame in America. Shh. <laughs> people are going to riot if they hear you say that. Um <laughs> But we have, in this last episode, had a huge listenership base in Tewksbury, UK. And we've said this before, like, thank you guys for listening. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I think we pronounce it wrong every time. Yeah, probably. Man. Yeah. You know, Americans. We, we Googled it this time. and It said Tewksbury. Tewksbury is what it said. So that's... Yeah. Shout out that's to That's where you. we're at. Shout out to you guys. And, like, it was an, a significant increase from just that one area so our listenership data that we get from our hosting um, shows us the country that people are listening from mm -hmm. and also like the cities if, if the city is large enough and it, it has, has a, banks oregon well if, if it has some. a lar large enough uh oh. number of people come in then we'll notice it yeah and so like at the top of the list this time was Tewksbury. yeah it was like the number one city for everywhere yeah for the last episode and it was significant like increase over like portland which came in number two at like a third the amount of listeners yeah no, for for the recent recently portland's been number one like every time because yeah. we're right near portland yeah it's a market close to us so if somebody like from tewksbury wants to let us know why you guys have been listening yeah. i mean we definitely appreciate it and we love having you guys listen but like, just tell us what we did right to get, <laughs> to get you <laughs> tell, all tell us how we could do more right yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> or just, yeah, like, did, were you the one that, like, told all your friends about it? Like, because we'll send you a sticker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if, if you're the one, this we'll, we'll definitely send you a sticker yeah. or two just to, as a thank you. Just hit us up. <laughs> okay. So, um, one, I guess, last thing. Yeah. We had... Before uh, we get to the main topic. Yeah, we had an Ask Hannon Eric, um, which is a corner, I'm calling it. It's a, it's a segment. It's it, a segment. It comes and goes. Yeah. Of... Uh, if you ask us a question, you can do that either Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, send it to our email address. If you can find our, our address, send us snail mail. Yeah, on our website, you can find the contact form. Um, but if you, which our website is goburningpodcast.com. If you have a question, it can be birding related. It could be life related. You know, we'll make up an answer for anything. Yeah. So um, if you have a question, submit it to us. And we will send you a sticker if you add the address because I'm not just going to go to the post office and be like, send this to the world. Send this out. Yes. Send this to someone. Yeah. So we did have a question this week and it was from GB who um, is in Florida. Yeah. And they said, what are your favorite top five apps you use while birding? And we're going to go above and beyond because we have more than five apps. Um, but Eric, kick us off. And so, these are not in order. In, in no in no particular order, besides that the first one's my favorite. <laughs> is uh, so we use we use lots of different apps for lots of different purposes, and probably the maybe not the most used, but the most heavily leaned upon for me is the eBird app. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. I use it to. Uh, track all my lists i use it to decide on locations to go it's free it's free and you, it, can, you can i need to donate but <laughs> you definitely donate to it and you can help support the cause for more um development of the app and development of the website and everything but it's a great app yeah, yeah. um so another one we use a lot is iNaturalist and that they also developed another app recently called seek which is a little bit more like friendly to the people that aren't like you know community scientists um but iNaturalist is a lot of fun you can take a picture of a, a organism you know plant animal insect whatever and post it to the site and then it uses um crowdsourcing to and image recognition yeah to identify it for you so if you're out in the field and you see a plant that you have no idea then you can take a picture of it and try to figure it out and the seek app which is like i said they're their new kind of app that goes along with it mm -hmm. it can like if you put your you know open it up on your phone and you put it on whatever it is it tries to it can identify it in real time yeah exactly which is really cool i was just playing with it yesterday yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun yeah so the next one uh, ibird we don't have we haven't ponied up the money for very many bird apps but uh ibird's one that we did um pony up and pay for so that's, uh, I and think that's the only app that we pay for. We each had to pay for it because we, Eric has an Android and I have an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, so two, two different uh, subscriptions yeah. to, uh, to iBird. I have iBird, it's called iBird Pro. And, and then iBird like Ultimate. iBird Ultimate for iPhone. So it's, it's a field guide. Yeah. It, it does what you'd expect a field guide to do. It has, uh, has pictures, it has audio. It's, it's a good guide. There's lots of other um, field guides for apps though and I'm, from, it, from what I understand, they're pretty much all awesome. Yeah, and we like that one because we like the pictures. They yeah. also have uh, drawings and interesting ways to distinguish different species apart from each other. And I really like the, like, 
other birds that are similar feature. I like the facts. Yeah, a little tab for facts. You yeah. can see sometimes sometimes it'll say like the um, the collective uh, collective noun forum or it'll have like random information that's kind of kind of interesting. So you go ahead and talk about so, those other two. So the next one, uh, I guess the next two are ones that pretty much only I use. Hannah doesn't really use them. So RecForge. Uh, RecForge 2 is what I use to do all of my recordings in the field for uh, bird calls or if we do an interview in the field when I'm using my phone. It's it's good. It downloads or it saves it in .waves, so it's easy to transfer onto my computer. It's a high-quality audio file, and it they I think, I think it's available for uh, iPhone also, so it's a pretty versatile app. It's free, so it does exactly what I needed to do. It records, and then I can transfer it. Though you can only have a certain number of recordings. I don't know what that number. I've never reached that number because I usually upload them real quick because I want to get them off my phone and I don't have a lot of space on my phone. But if you're looking to record in the field, then that's a good one. It's a good one for recording in the field, yeah. So the other one, BirdNet, that's that's a new app that's still in beta testing and it's only for only for Android. So I haven't used it. So Hannah hasn't used it, but it is surprisingly accurate. It uses Cornell's database for uh, the Macaulay library. The Macaulay library, yeah, for um, all all the um, bird information. Mm-hmm. But you record sounds around you, and it can identify birds based on the sound. Like, and it's surprisingly accurate. Like, if if something if a normal person wouldn't be able to identify it, like somebody that actually is really familiar with it, if they wouldn't be able to identify it, the app I don't think could pick it up. But I've I've been able to catch things. We had a belted kingfisher that was a female just doing the burp, burp, burp call. And there were a lot of people talking. And there was here. a bunch of people talking at the same time. And it was able to pick up the burp, burp that it was doing and recognize it was a belted kingfisher. And it was definitely recognizable as a kingfisher. but And, and it also uses geotagging to to realize that you're in the Pacific Northwest, so that's the only kingfisher you're going to have. So it's it can eliminate a lot of things on its own. I think that one's going to be really helpful for I, us. I really think it's I think it's going to be helpful for for everyone if if it continues getting developed and yeah. it does well because it's as of right now it's really good and I can see it definitely improving maybe the the feel of the app changing a little bit to make it more streamlined but it's it's good. Um, so one that I've used in the past, uh, I, I'm somebody that really likes community science and contributing to that because I think of myself as a scientist, but not somebody who like necessarily does research. Not with a lab coat. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one app that I ran into a couple years ago is called Record the Earth. And it's something that is used to um, record soundscapes. And soundscapes are something that most people don't think of, but are really important to wildlife because, you know, if they're just hearing like traffic all the time, they're not hearing the normal, like other calls and and sounds of nature that are out there. And so this app uses your location and you record for a, you know, a specific amount of time. I think it's like 30 seconds or something Hmm. of just the noise around you. And it really helps you listen and pay attention. It asks you when you submit, like what noises you heard were they animal were they anthropomorphic you know what were they yeah and then it goes into a database and i imagine it's used at a later date yeah but hopefully but it's just it's really interesting to just stand there for you know 30 seconds and like listen and then the app like asks you to you know 
say what you noticed when you're listening to it or when you were recording him and so then it really makes you like think about what the the sounds are and how you know animals are like listening to this and is this natural sounds for them or are these something that that's going to screw them up yeah yeah so i thought that was cool that is cool um and then our last one that we use when we're birding is Google Maps. Probably the number one app that we use. <laughs> I am the navigator when we go birding places, air drives, and uh, it is just so helpful yeah. to have Google Maps. Because I, I think we've mentioned it a couple times how we've used Google Maps when we were looking for the pinion jays. Yeah. Like we heard, we heard them off to the side and we couldn't on see the highway. It on, while we were driving down the highway and we couldn't see a direct route. So you pulled up Google Maps. And got and got us down and around to get into the cemetery where they were at. Yeah. So it's Google Maps is like number one app that we use <laughs> above above eBird. In in terms of time used, probably not, but in terms of like dependence upon. Yeah. Google Maps is very heavily dependent <laughs> upon. Yeah. So thank you so much for your question. Um, I think this was kind of a good list. I know there's a lot of other apps oh, that are coming out recently tons. or now. There's um, the ABA Young Birder of the Year is developing an app. Mm-hmm. We actually had somebody stay with us at our hotel that uh, their grandson is developing an app that's still in beta testing. Mm-hmm. It's called Sparkbird, um, which we've tried out a little bit, but not a whole lot. Haven't really had a chance to mess with that one much. But there's there's a ton of new apps coming out. So actually, you know, we might put a um, put a thing up on Facebook and like see what your favorite bird or birding apps are when you're out in the field so not like google maps not necessarily birding but like things that are helpful things that have helped (laughs) yeah um so thank you for your question if you guys have one please make sure to get it into us and we'll send you a sticker yeah and make sure to send an address so we know where to send that sticker yeah um so getting into the meat of the podcast even though we've been talking for a long time uh we interviewed a person at the Oregon Zoo mm-hmm. who is very involved with the so California condor. The lead avian um, curator yeah. at the Oregon Zoo. Yeah, so he's very involved with the California condor um, repopulation program, I guess. Breeding. Breeding. Yeah. Yeah. So Condor is tra- doing what they need to do. We are so happy <laughs> that Travis um, took some time out of his day. I know he's probably very busy. They have a lot of birds at the Oregon Zoo. Oh my Zoo. gosh, he, he was so busy. He had, <laughs> like, it's... Not, not not to d- disparage him in any way, he is very busy. He's a very per- busy person. His radio was blowing up the whole time, and like probably right before he was like, "Oh, I need to, I need to call and make sure that he wasn't going to get bothered for the time during the interview." So we had to, like, Hannah, Hannah felt guilty. I was a jerk, and I didn't even realize <laughs> it till I get the end of the interview. And I'm like, "Oh man, I'm just bogarting his time. We need to." Yeah, so he's a very busy guy. And and we are so thankful for yeah. the work that he does because we want to see California condors in Oregon. Um, so without further ado, yeah. thank you, Travis. And yeah, here's thanks, the Travis. Um, so we're at the beautiful Oregon Zoo, which is a place that Eric and I have both been coming to for many years, being Oregonians. Um, this is where we like hung out. This is where I really got into wildlife and nature. My parents 
they, when I was a kid, they um, heard me say something about a shark, and my mom was like, let's go find Hannah a shark. So we went to the Oregon Coast Aquarium <laughs> and saw a shark. And so we, I don't know about you, but we did that pretty frequently when I was a kid. Whenever you wanted to see any kind of animal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my parents were like, let's go. Let's go see, let's go find a lion. I'm not going to take you to let's Africa, but we'll see an elephant <laughs> at the zoo. <laughs> Um, but we are so happy that Travis is joining us today to talk about condors. So Travis, um, just tell us about yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, my name is Travis Coons. I'm one of the animal curators here at the zoo. And uh, my purview is all of the bird programs and then our butterfly, uh, endangered butterfly release programs. So oh. I work with all of the avian stuff on grounds. Um, I do manage our condor uh, propagation center out in rural Clackamas County where we currently have 44 condors. Wow. And then um, I'm in charge of our Oregon Silver Spot and uh, Taylor's Checker Spot reintroduction programs as cool. well. So cool. that's that's the basics of what I do here at the zoo. Yeah. Um, you want more information than that? You yeah. Want yeah, sure. Background, yeah. You want to go yeah, back? background, what, what, oh, what, what got you into back. everything? Peel yeah. off all those layers. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, so I went to, I'm from Texas originally, so I've only been in Oregon now, but it's my third summer. Um, I went to school at Texas Tech University, so that's up in the Panhandle near, um, kind of getting close to New Mexico and West Texas. So I started out in college doing uh, wildlife rehab, and I did a lot of, started out feeding a lot of baby birds, um, just anything that came through. I did a lot of scrubbing pools and cleaning dishes and cleaning yeah. laundry, and that was, that was my basic job, right, until they even let me look at a bird, and then maybe I could go put down a, a mouse for the night here, and you know, that was my, <laughs> that was, that was my, my foray into this, into this thing, um, but then they couldn't get rid of me, so I just, eventually they started putting me out on, on rescues, so I would drive out to New Mexico and pull a great horned owl out of a barbed wire fence, oh, wow. and those yeah. kind of things, and then bring it back to the center, and I'd come back on the way, and I'd have a snapping turtle and a great horn down <laughs> in the back of my little Honda hatchback, <laughs> driving across West Texas. Um, that was kind of where I started, and then uh, from there, I kind of sprayed my resume out anywhere anybody that would take me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and having that experience was super helpful. I got a job at the San Antonio Zoo, but it, not not with birds at all. I was a mammal keeper initially, right. um, large mammals. I had a couple of birds in my area. I had a whiteback vulture, ostrich, cassowaries, so big stuff. Oh, so the scary ones. The, yeah. the, the, the ones that they barely us, count as birds. Yeah, they gave us all the big so dinosaur. <laughs> um, we had our big uh, cassowary, and then um, not a lot past that. So I was taking care of cassowaries, uh, ostrich, and then um, I actually moved into the elephant department there, and it wasn't really? until I got a job at uh, in Dallas at the Dallas World Aquarium where I really started getting into birds. They hired me as a mammal keeper there, <laughs> and uh, and then my first day I was working with hummingbirds. So it was kind of a, an interesting experience there. But, so you go from uh, elephants to hummingbirds. Elephants to hummingbirds. <laughs> yeah, that was my trend. That literally was my transition. That's great. That's sweet. Um, <laughs> and then the and then the the job at Dallas. If you don't know about the Dallas World Aquarium, it's got a pretty amazing collection of. Uh, neotropical, so primarily um, Southeast Asia and then South American birds. Um, but it's got a pretty good African collection. It's got a shoebill. It's the only nice. place in the country that you can go stand two feet from a shoebill stork if you want I to. Think, wow. I think we saw the shoebill. We bill. never went there. No? I th no. Oh, right. We just went to the Dow Zoo. Oh, oh, you're right. Yeah, not that. Well, okay. you missed out. <laughs> for, 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 from a birding that. perspective, that's, that's one of the best. Yeah, we need to. There's okay. amazing birds there. So that was kind of. I was the man. I was the mammal manager there. I was in charge of the commissary, but I was also a zookeeper. And it turned out ninety percent of my day was taking care of birds, mm. breeding birds. We ended up 
I got to participate in um, some pretty rare stuff. So Cock of the Rocks, we had Bird of oh. Paradise, um, Palm Cockatoo, uh, Bali Mina, a lot of rare stuff, and then a lot of trogans and things that people don't have, and then mm-hmm. nocturnal yeah. curacaos. I mean, the <laughs> list goes on. It's crazy. And then almost any ramp acid you can think of, uh, yeah. Playbill Mountain Toucans, Tokos, Fiery, Fiery Aeroceries, which nobody has Fiery Aeroceries. So that was just that's, like that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome, and and that was just it really put right in front of my face how amazing birds were, and how and I, and I was being directed by my daily work. I was working with birds constantly, and I was breeding Argus pheasants and doing cool stuff, and so it just yeah. kind of tracked me that way, and um, I was able to kind of create my own. Uh, I was I was a manager there, so I was able to create my own routine. I essentially started building it all around. Just the birds. More birds, more birds, and then, more birds. And then I, would, I had a tree kangaroo and a giant otter and a jaguar, but just the birds. And then let everybody else take care of the monkeys and stuff. So um, I kind of started naturally tracking there. And then from that, I got a job as the um, the bird department supervisor at San Antonio Zoo. So back to my home zoo okay. um, in San Antonio, which is where I started. And uh, and they have the, the third largest bird collection in AZA, in, in wow. zoos in North America. So. Really? Working at San Antonio was, was amazing. It's huge, massive collection with 24 bird keepers. I mean, just a oh big, big staff. Um, so it was a lot of a lot of neat stuff, but uh, had some amazing uh, opportunities there. And then um, would have stayed there for years and years and years, but the job here at the Oregon Zoo opened up. My wife was interested in getting back to the Pacific Northwest, um, being from here. And um, there was only a couple of zoos that I was going to consider, and Oregon Zoo was number one on the list. Mm, yeah. And so when the bird curator job came up at Oregon Zoo, I, I figured we might as well go for it. And, and that's been about uh, two and a half years now. Nice. Awesome. So did you, when you got to the Oregon Zoo here, did you immediately get right into condors? Or yeah, I was hired as the, the curator of that department. So the condors were from day one oh, under my day, purview. Day one. Yeah. Right. Um, and by yeah, day two or three, I was out there at the facility meeting up with them. What do we do? Where are we going next? Yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's an amazing, <laughs> amazing opportunity to get to to be in charge of one of only four propagation centers. Is that's pretty yeah. special. So, what are the other propagation centers aside from the Oregon Zoo one here? Yeah, it started um, with LA and San Diego. We're the only we're the first two that were breeding condors for okay. release. And then um, not too long after um, the inception of the condor breeding um, in the mid-80s, um, well, that's when it started. Releases started in the 90s, and not too long after the releases began, mm-hmm. the Peregrine Fund got involved, and their facility is in Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Okay. The World Center for Birds of Prey. Mm-hmm. They, that's their, their front of house, and there's a, okay. a guests can come through and see their, their animals and stuff. Yeah. It's birds-only raptors. Um, but they have the largest propagation center for California condors wow. was actually in Boise, Idaho. Okay. Numbers off the top of my head, I, I think they have upwards of 60, 60, 60 birds. Wow. Yeah. Plus, plus offspring. So you're getting there then. Yeah. We're, we don't have Did, the, you have the capacity we don't have the infrastructure <laughs> to catch them. We're not going to, we're not trying to go there, but um, <laughs> we are doing all kinds of fun stuff with actually, with what we have, um, finding ways to increase our production. Yeah. Huh. Wow. So, um, before, like, when you started doing the, the rehab, like, in college, is that, like, when you became a birder there, or when did you, like, or, or did you ever become a birder? Yeah. That's right. the, yeah, <laughs> I know. looking at him out in the wild. Right? I, I, I don't know. I don't know when I could officially call myself a birder. I love getting up early when I go camping and sit yeah. out there, and it wasn't until probably two or three years ago that I had my own Sibley. 
I don't have a good pair of binocs. I don't have a spotting scope. So I don't know if I can consider myself a birder at all. Uh, I'm an appreciator of, yeah. of all things birds. And I would go out quite a bit in, uh, down in Texas. There's tremendous birding down in South Texas. And mm-hmm. I was right there in, in San Antonio, um, right on the cusp of that. So I would go out and anybody that I would take with me had three spotting scopes and a couple of pairs of binocs. And so I never, it was never bar, bar, yeah, yeah, I never needed to, to Well, why invest upgrade. the money if you don't have to? Exactly. And well, then do since, you have an eBird account? I don't. You don't? Oh, okay. So I don't think I'm a birder. Yeah, I, don't know. I don't think I'm a birder. It's embarrassing. But I knew this was coming, so yeah. I was ready for it. It happens. You guys made the assumption that I was a birder. <laughs> Are most like avian keepers birders? I don't think that I don't think so. Okay, so it's not mutually uh, exclusive. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think that um, bird people, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Getting out there and and making observations of birds in the in and the natural habit. A lot of the folks that work for me here, they don't know much about native birds, and I they really? wouldn't necessarily pick out a spotted towhee versus a. Huh. Uh, no, I'm going to draw a blank. But um, <laughs> and anything else? Yeah, yeah anything like else? A bewitch wren. Yeah. I don't know that I won't throw anybody else under the bus, but yeah, I don't. They're not. Yeah. That's not birding first. It's more uh-huh. of an appreciation of birds or animals. I'm tra- I'm tracking yeah. towards this avian, and then they might pick up. An appreciation for yeah. birding. Well, you don't, you don't have to be a birder to appreciate like what what you do. Yeah, is, yeah. Like that's a whole different thing than yeah. It's totally separate. Out, it's, it's different, but it's yeah. birds both ways. It's absolutely birds both ways, yeah. and it's certainly my passion and now, now my free time in a way built around going and trying to see what birds I can find. Yeah, just not in some formalized fashion. Where <laughs> just, I'm now, just not hardcore. And I've, I've yeah. made a list. You're not really yeah. a boxer, so I don't like us. I don't know if that's the right term. I don't think it's <laughs> a I think it's yeah. super cool. <laughs> And I've made lists, and we've yeah. made lists when uh, my wife and I, when we've gone to multiple places, and um, but yeah, nothing yeah. official, no accounts, <laughs> no, no no documentation outside of yeah. a piece of eight and a half by eleven. You only have like pie charts and graphs <laughs> and everything. No, like no, but I've got you know, like I I geeked out. I saw a uh, American goldfinch. Yeah. Just last over the 4th of July out of the oh, coast, cool. and it was my first one, and I knew for sure that was lifer for me, and so yeah. I've got this like. <laughs> Kind of I've got a list yeah. that's not formalized. Yeah. So I'm getting there. Well, you can recognize when you've seen something that you haven't seen. Yeah. Right? That's totally. Yeah. So there we go. And I do have a naturalist account. Does that count? Right? Oh, that's awesome. I, that counts. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Citizen science. That's so I'm, I'm trying to do something. That's good. <laughs> I'll get there. No, no. I do you mean, do most, mostly mushrooms on your iNaturalist? Or do you? It's typo stuff. Because it's all mushrooms on iNaturalist. I, I know. Seriously. I do mostly, <laughs> I do mostly typo stuff. Typo stuff. All right. Do you go to the coast a lot? I try to. Yeah? Yeah. As much as possible. I got a little kid now, so it's that's a little difficult. But now she's she's doing better. So we, oh. we we just spent a whole week out there, Fourth of July. Oh, that's oh, great. Rockaway. With, with Rockaway, yeah. All right, it's not that far from us out there. We're yeah, because you're Cannon Beach. Cannon Beach, and yeah. we we were going up. We did Hug Point or Hug. Yeah, Hug Point. Hug Point, yeah. and then Arcadia. Mm-hmm. We were tide pooling during the super low tides. Now yes. we're getting way off track, aren't we? But. <laughs> no, that's- the low tide, the, the low, low tides, it was amazing. Yeah, oh. we were Blood out at Haystack, and, and nice. we almost walked all the way around. Oh, because you, you could get out. And you, you could get to the you could get to the west side of Haystack Rock on the fourth, and you, could you see the um, nest? Are there puffins there nesting and stuff? There, yeah, there's yeah. there's tons. Of, they're they're not nesting on that side though. Uh-huh. They're nesting on the like the north side. Uh-huh. So you can see that from the land, it's like no problem during right. all tides. The but pigeon guillemots were nesting. The, the pigeon guillemots, right the Brant's cormorants, awesome. were like super close because they're it's an area of the rock that yeah. people don't go because you can't get there because awesome. of the water so it was, it was like kind of like a catch-22 like it's really cool but then yeah. it's like well now i'm stressing these birds out because <laughs> we're, uh-huh, we're we're in an area that we don't normally go totally. to yeah. we 
on the fourth, huh? I was in Garibaldi tie pulling on the fourth. Yeah. Okay, just that's so close. Well, August second, it's going to be. I saw that first and second. I think. Yeah, first right? and second. Yeah, it's going to be yeah, pretty good. I'll try to get back up there. Yeah. I think we have a room for the first at our hotel. Oh, okay. Yeah. Keep it touch. Yeah. So, anyways, um, so how how back did to the condors. yeah? So you talked about um, the four different locations that have breeding areas. How did the Oregon Zoo get involved in it? Were they like super gung ho about we need to restore condor populations yeah. in this area or? There's, it's a mixed bag of an answer and I've, it was before my time here, but I've kind of gotten the download from folks over the years. And so there was, there was a large scale event that they were planning for, um, back in the early nineties and wanted to have some sort of, what are we going to, what's going to be our big hook? What's going to be our big thing? And it was, was it the, um, some sort of anniversary of Lewis and Clark's expedition, I believe. Okay. Okay. hundred years, 150 years. 2004 years. would have been 200 years. 200 years. That's what it was. Yeah. Oh, man. I just showed my lack of historical. But I'm not you're, from, you're not from, I'm not from Oregon. Oregon. I had so. to sing the song in my head okay. that we sang in So the 200, the, the 200, the bicentennial, that's correct. I remember it was a bicentennial celebration okay. of Lewis and Clark. And what's going to be our big hook? And wouldn't it be great if we could get condors back up into Oregon? Oh, so that right. was literally just sitting around a table and talking about what are we going to. And so there's there's three facilities doing it. Um, there's a really cool book. Um, by Jesse D'Elia, um, Condors in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. And it kind of breaks it down at the beginning of the book, um, Oregon Zoo's foray into this thing. Really? But there was two other zoos, two or three other zoos, um, and two of them are located actually on the East Coast that were trying to get into this. Um, and so there was three... That would be a logistical nightmare. Yeah, right? it does seem <laughs> kind of difficult. There's three to four at this time in the early 90s zoos vying for this this spot and uh, to be the number number four breeding center. Yeah. And I don't know the ins and outs of the process, but there was there was different land assessments, site assessments by the people that were already doing it. So mm-hmm. the, the folks involved in the Condor program came up here and, okay, where are you going to put them? Show me your options. And, and I assume did that at the other facilities as well yeah. and then landed on, on the Oregon Zoo because the, the facility that we have, the land that we have is a metro property, uh, but it's okay. gorgeous. It's, it's very secluded. Um, it's got multi-level, so we have an upper level um, and then you go down below um, to where the, the breeding, the birds actually are, and there's a lot of visual barriers. So the birds are very, very far removed from from the public. Yeah. Whereas at the other three breeding facilities, they're actually on grounds at the Los Angeles Zoo, at the San Diego okay. Animal, Wild Animal Park. Yeah. Now it's called the Safari Park. And then um, Boise is a little bit farther removed. All of them are, they don't have like public that can visit. Yeah, but they've but got a lot nearby. of yeah, a lot of stuff nearby, infrastructure, cars and stuff moving around. Ours are very, very removed, so it's All a right. really nice spot. So I think that kind of maybe sealed the deal for us. Plus, like you said, we're on the West Coast, mm-hmm. um, logistically getting a bird to New York and then yeah. exchanging eggs from New York to LA. I don't remember where it was if it was in New York or I think it was yeah. the Bronx. Um, but at any rate, yeah, logistically being on the West Coast makes things a lot smoother because we're we yeah. move eggs around you know we, we transport birds from here to arizona or here to big sur so okay. for release so to re, to transport for release from the east coast would be pretty tough yeah well i mean i, I can imagine it's a it's not a small bird no, and, tra- and, tra- and trying to comfortably transport because you don't want it to be stressed too much while you're transporting it. Right. Trying to get from one side of the country to the other. Yeah, it's a long train. It's a long drive. I mean, they do sometimes under, undergo, you know, I think maximum, probably about a 20-hour transport in a yeah. crate. But we would, wouldn't go any farther than that. So. Yeah, that's, 
feel like that's a lot. Do, do, it's so, a lot. So are they sedated, like completely no. out, or they, they're just no hanging they, out? Yeah, we've got. Um, it's it's basically the largest plastic dock kennel you can think of. All right. They make, mm -hmm. and then outfitted with uh, wood, um, like a like a half inch plywood with holes drilled in it oh, okay. on all the windows in the front door. Okay. So that they can't really see what's going yeah, on. Yeah, and then we, we raise them up over on a, off of the bottom of the crate so that they're not standing their own urates or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And then actually cut fresh cedar, stuff them under there. It's a little trick of the trade so it doesn't smell as bad. So then you get the cedar <laughs> making the smell in the van instead of the instead of the birds. Yeah. And that helps soak up all the urates and stuff. So right. the transport is, now we're, now we're jumping all over the place, aren't we? But the transport part of it, it would certainly, um, I wouldn't want to transport a bird from the East Coast. Oh my god! Yeah, that would be so. Hey, I can't. I can't even. I can't even picture what it would be like to try to. It'd just get it be. All it'd right be down. a long. It'd be a long plane ride. Yeah. Instead yeah. of a instead of a car ride, with a smelly bird. Doable. Yeah, with a smelly bird. Yeah. But you never know what's in your commercial flight. I mean, we move animals that's, with these all the time, and so you don't know what's down in cargo. Really. Yeah. How long you think about that the next? Yeah, time I think flight? it's what is it sixty, <laughs> uh, sixty two inches. Whatever the height for the cargo bay door, but whatever crate you can fit in. So there could be a lion down there. That's cool. Really? On your plane with you never know. That's pretty That's sweet. Pretty, yeah. Lions on a plane. Samuel L. Jackson's snakes next movie. On a plane. Oh my gosh. It's a real thing. They move snakes on a plane all the time. <laughs> Purposely. I'm mean, sure they're not like fluorescent and everything yeah. like in the movie, but I never saw that movie. It was ridiculous. That's probably why I didn't see it. Yeah. So are condors, are they more difficult to care for than any other bird? Like since there's such a big investment in like these birds specifically, mm -hmm. since they're so endangered, you know, and trying to bring them back into the, into the landscape, are, are they more difficult to care for? Is it like much more stressful than like your ostrich that you'd care for before? Um, actually, condors are surprisingly compliant with this um, <laughs> really? captive breeding thing. They're easy is a is a gross oversimplification, and, and the keepers would hang me up by my toenails <laughs> if I said it was easy. Yeah, but they breed more readily than many other species of birds. So All we're right. going to take a very quick example: palm cockatoo. There's been documentations of a palm cockatoo female that didn't lay her first egg until she was 60, six, six zero, 60 years old. Jeez. Oh my gosh. And um, when we first brought condors to our breeding facility at Johnson, um, we had a fertile egg within the first year. Hmm. And so when you put condors together and you provide them with all they need, which is a mouthful, there's a tremendous amount of things that you have to get in place yeah, to, yeah. to set them up for success. But once you set them up for success, provide them with good food, and privacy and you have um you know several birds but when you're pairing birds and you put them together they're getting along there's a good chance they're going to lay a fertile egg wow. and that doesn't get any easier from there yeah but um it's certainly not um, but it's not the most difficult bird it's not the most difficult and the condors are be being compliant with this whole propagation thing is, yeah. is the real reason that we've been able to go from 22 birds to over 500 yeah within a relatively short amount of time mm -hmm. um and, and we just assigned stud book, stud book number 1,000 um, just recently. So really? that's a tremendous amount of production. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, very exciting. Over a relatively short amount of time, starting counting, starting counting in the mid-80s, mid to early 80s. So we've had 1,000 birds hatch out. Yeah. Um, that's wild and captive uh, births, mm -hmm. hatches. But um, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of animals. So they are helping each other, helping us out, helping, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and so they're 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 not easy. I don't want to use that word, but yeah. they they make it easier on us. So the fact that they were down to twenty two at one point in time, 
do you know condor specialists or you or anybody think that there was a loss of genetic diversity well there definitely is i mean if you're just looking at 50 birds versus 20 you yeah know, even 30 versus 20 you're going to lose something there mm. Um, there's a lot paid attention now to maintaining what we do have. Mm -hmm. And so there's what's called a stud book, um, in, in a stud book keeper, there's a person that's in charge of, of all of our genetic moves. So we're placing, we're trying to place the, uh, um, the widest range of genetics in each of the different release sites and pairing together birds, um, with, uh, you know, as far separated as possible, mm -hmm. yeah. genetically speaking. So there's a lot that's paid to it to maximize what we have, mm -hmm. but we only have what we have. Yeah. Um, there's not, there's not this major coefficient of inbreeding or anything like that going on. We're not popping out three eyed condors. Yeah. Everybody's super helpful, <laughs> super healthy. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot that's, that's paid to it, but mm -hmm. yes, we are only working with the genetic bank that we have. So with, um, with only 22 to start with, like, is that like, I don't, I don't know kind of what, where I'm going at. I know where I'm going, but I don't know how to get there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, so the um, populations that can succeed on their own and don't have any kind of problems, is this, is 22 like below that number that would have had any chance, genetically speaking, like to naturally do its thing? Or yeah. is this the only way for 22 to become 500? Become 500 would have been selective. My opinion on the matter is that this was the only way to, okay. to rebound it. Yeah. Um, what a geneticist and what other folks might say, I'm not 100% sure. Okay. I know that there was very strong opinions at the time that these birds not be extirpated, not be taken out of the wild yeah. and bred. So there was a lot of folks, science-minded mm -hmm. scientists, I would yeah. imagine, that were strongly against this as a proposal, as a, yeah, as yeah. a, as a way forward. And I don't know the individuals that, that, that acted this way, but mm -hmm. there were folks that when that last bird um, was, was actually captured in Easter of 87, I believe it was, was slated to go to Los Angeles. And folks were so staunchly opposed to this, this bird being brought into captivity mm -hmm. that people chained themselves to the front, to the gates at the Los Angeles Zoo. Really? And wow. would not, this is personal communication that I received from the curator of the LA Zoo at the time. They yeah. chained themselves at the gate. Oh there gosh. was no way you were not bringing this condor here over yeah. our dead bodies, basically. Wow. Right? Yeah. And so they kept driving to San Diego. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And that, bird, and that bird went to the San Diego Zoo really? instead. Yeah. <laughs> and because nobody knew that the bird was going to San Diego, so they were able to get ahead. So there was yeah. very strong opinions at the time. Huh. And, and I've heard personal communication from folks that were in that camp and yeah. were now saying we were wrong. Hmm. We, we, if we hadn't done this, they'd be dead. They'd be gone. Yeah. And, well, that's, that's good to hear that. The people that were so staunchly opposed to it have seen the six, the relative success of what's mm -hmm. going on right now, yeah. and that that's changed their mind yeah. as to what they. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I I hope that that individual um, doesn't represent the minority, you know. But I think people are coming around and yeah. seeing the results and. Well, and you, need, you need to have opposition, no matter. You don't want to be complete blinders totally. and not not have any. Op if you have yeah. no opposition, you don't have anyone questioning what you're doing and, and that's not pointing out potential pitfalls exactly yeah. you, you need which is no matter what the program which is, is yeah. where we're at now with this northern release right there's there's a planned northern release i might be getting ahead of myself yeah. on the question no, 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 there's just a talk. planned planned northern release for the california condor and that's we just got through was that comment period where 
um, that's part of the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife process is uh-huh. to is to offer up these commentary periods. And so they did a traveling roadshow, and we hosted one of them. We hosted the first one, and give people that chance to voice their opposition. Why yeah. are, why do you feel this is a bad idea? Tell us what yeah, you yeah. think in, in general. And these are the different options. Which of these is is more palatable to you? as a landowner or somebody that's invested in that yeah. area, a stakeholder in this, in this instance. So did you get a lot of feedback? Were you at these? I was. At, I attended the one here. Um, funny enough, K2 News was also here, and they pulled me for a interview, yeah. and I missed the entire meeting. Oh, oh no! <laughs> well, I did a K2 interview. I was a little frustrated <laughs> with that. So I couldn't tell you how that really went, but what, what I, I told you, it, the one here in Portland um, was, was relatively uneventful. It was... Everybody here was was for the most part um, largely in favor of it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I there think was, Portlanders would be positive. Yeah, there was a few questions. Um, I think as you get closer to the to the range of to to the area where these birds are, because they were going down to Arcata, um, Arcata, Arcata, California, mm-hmm. and then um, somewhere in between. I think oh, Southern okay. Oregon. I think okay. they were starting off in Klamath and then Arcata or something like that. So as you get closer to the areas that are actually going to be affected by landowners that have cattle. Or have you know different vested interests in this land? Yeah, um, I think that's where you're going to get more of the, the opposition. Um, I didn't get a direct download from the service as far as how those went, mm-hmm. but from what I can tell, we're pushing, mostly positive. We're pushing the, forward. The Portland yeah. one, at least. The Portland was absolutely most of yeah. Yeah, positive. Okay, that's good. It seems that we're pushing forward, so. Um, so it must be mostly positive, or if the negatives, they've been able to. Yeah, and I have, like alleviate. I said, I, I haven't heard the final plan, yeah, yeah. but. Um, the the end result will be um, condors released in Northern California. Nice. Yeah. Soon. Awesome. Yeah. Soon. So um, with the negative with the oppositions to this, does le- people's uh, lead like mm-hmm. that's big number number one thing? Let's I want, get to it. Lead. Let's get to let's, let's yeah, get to lead. Totally. So it's an element. It's an element. Yeah. So it's used in manufacture of ammunition, like very historically, very widely used in ammunition. Right. And there's kind of been a switch to get away from it, but not and very much. There's been a lot of opposition to getting away from it. Right. California just passed some pretty serious legislation, and now lead ammunition is illegal for hunting in the state of California as of a couple weeks ago. That really? I, see, I, I was reading a thing the other day, and I was like really discouraged because it was something that passed like three years ago, yeah. and I wasn't aware at all of what just recently passed. And, and, and what you're talking about is, is a, it was a kind of a step below the, the newest legislation? Yeah, it was, it was like restricted, but mm-hmm. only for certain things in certain areas. And, and it's all, it's great, but talking to the folks that are down there and talking to the lead outreach folks that are in California... Mm-hmm. It's not working. It's not helping. It's not really the. That's that's the thing that I was reading. Said yeah. it was like this doesn't do anything. It's not it's the like, prescribed <laughs> method. If yeah. it's the state of Oregon, we would not recommend to go to a lead a lead ammunition ban here. And I don't want to speak authoritatively on this necessarily. Yeah. We have a lead outreach specialist that works for the Oregon Zoo. Okay. Um, his name's Leland Brown. He goes around the state of Oregon and is constant in constant connection with with hunters and, and educating and, and, and does ballistic demonstrations and shows people um, the alternatives to lead. Hmm. Um, so that's really what we want to do is just a, a cultural shift of folks understanding that yeah. we're, if you're substance hunting and you're, you're hunting for your family, A, you don't want to be um, providing your family with lead bull yeah. fragments in their food. Um, and, and then B, if you, if you want to think to the next step, if you leave that, out in the environment then you're causing problems with not condors but yes condors 
but here in here in Oregon, golden eagles, bald eagles, crows, jays, stellar jays, you know, the whole gamut. Tons so, of stuff eating dead stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so we want to. We just want there to be a, a shift in the way that we think, and the there's a there's a huge appreciation of nature in this part of the country mm -hmm. already. So play off of that instead of governing people and hammering on people. Yeah, yeah. Because who's actually out there in California checking into people's ammo bags yeah. or following somebody around? And really, if you have a copper bullet on you and somebody asks you what you're shooting, it doesn't mean that you, you have a copper bullet. It doesn't mean that you're not shooting lead ammo. Yeah. So people are going to get... A, my, my point is this. People are going to get around any sort That's of legislation, true, yeah. but somebody's going to find a way around it, or they're just going to go out there and illegally do it. And that Ill illegally used bullet is no different than illegal, you know, it's still going to be out there. It's still mm -hmm. fodder for a condor if he gets to it. So, yeah. But lead is the, is the crux of the issue. And we have our uh, annual field team meetings um, every year where the, the groups from all the field release sites and all the propagation facilities get together and talk condors. Mm -hmm. um, I wish I had a little clicker at those things to count the amount of times they use the word lead because yeah. that is the topic of conversation for the whole week. Really? Um, that is the thing that is, is preventing these animals from rebounding. That and uh, trash. Trash. Micro trash for sure hmm. is another major one. Um, condors, vultures by nature are very inquisitive, so they'll pick up stuff. Stuff they pick up, they'll ingest it. Mm -hmm. Stuff they ingest, they go feed their chick. And you'll find that it takes two or three months. You find a lot of chicks that are dead, and they're wild chicks that are dead because it takes about that long to get impacted by by micro trash. Yeah. So are they finding it on like trails, or are they going to like landfills, or people dumping out the back uh, of the truck? Yeah, all of it. Huh. <laughs> yeah, probably mostly on the trails and in the in, in the more wild areas that are just getting you know granola the edge of your granola yeah. bar yeah. wrapper or the top of your soda or whatever mm -hmm. you know just just the general plastic stuff that we leave out there as people that are getting picked up as food yeah. items so how person like this is a weird question how personable are like condors like if you know there's i know there's a population in california i interviewed at the wild winds um, reserve site in bakersfield mm -hmm. and they said they had condors there but like how often do they come like close to human habitation well, it's like because turkey because vultures you'll see them like you go to a park you can you get 10 feet away from a turkey vulture yeah. no problem they don't yeah. they don't care and at all they're like, busy doing what they're doing the park when i i was interviewing they were talking about like oh you know they if there's a dead cow they'll come over but like we didn't see any when we were there <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> but like yeah I'm, i mean how often or would they get close they're incredibly intelligent animals and so they're then by they're, they're so they're, therefore they're inquisitive mm -hmm. okay. so they want to go check out things and they're not scared because they don't have natural predators okay so they don't have the they don't really have a they're not like a like a prey animal that like you look at me wrong and i'm gonna run the other way yeah. yeah so they don't have that built into them so there's that and then they're so intelligent that they can develop this repertoire and you don't know who you're talking about if you're looking at a chick who was raised in a captive setting mm -hmm. we do absolutely everything we can to keep those animals wild they don't see us bringing the food even here at the zoo our condors that are in our in our exhibit do not see keepers with food. Our food oh, is always okay. covered. They don't make that connection. We have magic food rooms where we put it. We close the doors, put in food, open the doors after we're gone, and so there's no direct connection. So we do okay. everything we can to try to prevent magic that. Food rooms. That yeah, <laughs> to try to prevent that human uh, that habituation mm -hmm. to humans. Yeah. Um, I know the population down near uh, Grand Canyon. 
that frequents their visitor center, and mm-hmm. they'll get pretty fo- pretty close to people. They're okay. just okay. habituated to, and they they haven't had necessarily negative experiences. So. Um, that's They'll good to fairly close. They'll get fairly close, but what we want is them to be far removed, living in wild areas yeah. where yeah. there's no people within any sort of. They, they need to go to the most rugged L- areas and stay away from us because we're causing the problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the thing that we're most pr- one of the things that we're most proud of um, the Oregon Zoo is that the field teams out there that monitor each and every individual bird in the wild mm-hmm. because each and every bird is individually monitored yeah. by the respective field teams. Um, we hear back from those various field teams that the birds that come out of Oregon are across the board the best behaved condors. <laughs> really? And that's because of our remote um, breeding facility. Yeah. And they also, um, we have a, a wonderful uh, relationship with one of the local farms. Banson Farms is a local dairy, and we get all of their male dairy cows as well, carcasses, um, okay. to feed out. So if you've come through the zoo and you've seen the condors eating a, a cow carcass, yeah. where we also feed it to our wild dogs and lions. Um, that comes from a farm, and it's an amazing resource that they provide us with. Yeah. Um, but the bulk of those calves actually go out to our breeding, our condor breeding center. And so our birds are equipped. They know how to break into carcasses um, when they're out there, and that's not something that the other um, propagation facilities, they don't necessarily have that uh, luxury mm-hmm. as a food item. They don't and get so, that practice. Yeah, so their birds don't necessarily know how to break into the large carcasses. Um, from day one, and our birds have been doing it for a year yeah. before they go out there. So, did you say they get them donated, or do you guys have to pay for donated? Donated. Wow. That's pretty donated. sweet. And we have, uh, we're, we're very fortunate here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely it's free food, and it's fantastic. And then we also have a wonderfully robust core of volunteers um, okay. at the Oregon Zoo, and, and the farm's about an hour away. So we volunteers go pick it up. They drive yeah. it out to the condor Gosh. facility. And everything is free except oh, for yeah. the gas. That's great. That's awesome. Um, it's, it's huge. If we didn't have that, we, we, we would know. <laughs> We'd be paying for it. would it. be noticeable. Yes, most definitely. So, um, getting back to Lynn real quick. Yeah. Lynn. Um, back to Lynn. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So, I'm, I'm not a hunter, and I don't know a whole lot about hunting, but what is the alternative to lead shot? The, the most readily available is copper ammunition. And how does the price compare with that? Copper is, is, from what I understand, so I'm not a, I'm not much of a hunter myself. Okay. Uh, I've done a little bit here and there. Um, I've done my, mainly uh, like feral hog maintenance down in Texas and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, my understanding is that copper can be slightly more expensive than the lead, which makes sense. Copper is, a, is a more Precious valuable. Well, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the, the really neat thing that we see, uh, one of the things that Leland does, and there's um, the non- North American Non-Lead Partnership, is there's a group of folks that are, 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 it's nationwide, but it's really focused in the western half of the country, mm-hmm. um, and primarily in Condor Range countries, uh, states. Um, and these guys are really pushing, they're out there doing actual ballistics tests and demonstrations uh-huh. and showing people how these bullets perform one versus another yeah so they'll shoot uh, um, a, a dummy with a lead bullet and then right next to it with the exact same gun shoot it with a copper bullet and yeah. then showing these hunters that are attending these um, different demonstrations how it performs and, and why this this is a better alternative for these reasons and look how it performs and, and it, it, so is there like a negative difference in terms of the way it acts ballistically or is it pretty much across the board identical from it seems to be now. 
a bullet is not a bullet. So there's there's various types of copper yeah, bullets. Yeah. There's various, but from from what I'm told by the experts, yeah. copper bullets perform just as fine, just as good, if not yeah. better than the, than the lead. So it essentially just comes down to price. Well, and probably and then if you care about historical, yeah, historical like too, my yeah. dad used lead bullets, so I have to use exactly. that too. My yeah. pappy back in the day, exactly. So and then yeah. folks want to want to load their own ammunition, mm-hmm. and so you you don't you, you do that with lead grain. Okay. You don't typically do that. I don't know that you can reload your own ammunition with copper. Again, I'm not an expert. Okay. Um, but yes, it's a lot of it is just More of an the, expert than we are the cultural. <laughs> a lot of it is the cultural aspect. This is okay. what I use. This is what I always use. I buy my yeah. Remington shot. I go out and I shoot my one elk, yeah. you know, a year, and this is what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting people to change their minds, change is hard. We all, like change is hard for all yeah. of us. Oh, yeah. So that's just one of the things. It's it's an ingrained cultural thing. Um, and, and then you're skeptical if you only get one elk tag for the whole year, and you're only gonna take one maybe two shots mm-hmm. for that that animal do you really are you really going to put all your eggs in this basket of something that you haven't actually you've never used, used? before or yeah. are you going to use this one that for the last 30 years i've been able to drop an elk with this bullet yeah so we're fighting a lot of those things so if that's okay so then the carcasses that they're finding that the condors are finding and ingesting mm-hmm. are are those like largely poached animals? Like, why would they just leave them on the? Not necessarily. It's a lot of it is just the offal pile, oh, so the gut piles. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you'll field dress an elk or whatever. A lot of these guys, they think they're. And I want to make sure this is underscored. Hunting is is key to conservation. Hunters are absolutely critical to maintaining balances and things like that, for many reasons. So, by by no means am I anti-hunting. Mm-hmm. Hunters are out there doing a really great job, and, and to their mind, doing everything that they should do. They're mm-hmm. they're packing it in, they're packing it out. They're they're leaving no trace. Yeah, they're leaving behind a gut pile. But hey, the the scavengers are gonna are gonna come down. And that gut pile is gonna be gone in a couple of days. So no harm, no foul, right? Yeah. Except that that lead fragment, lead, lead bullet pile. fragmented all the way through the body and got into the gut pile, and now you've left lead, lead fragments down on the ground. Okay. okay. You thought you took you thought you did everything right. Yeah. But there's but, fragments, but, but, but in there's the still end, fragments the in mission, You left. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah when, Eric was, yeah. when Eric was telling me about the article that he read, and I was like, "Why are there so many like just dead animals yeah, why are there, laying around? Why are there like, that are contaminated?" Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then That's, when you're hunting, you know, you, you, you hit an animal. He's wounded. Mm-hmm. You think you've tracked it. You can't find him. He's gone. Mm-hmm. Two weeks, two days later, two weeks later, maybe that animal became septic and died because yeah. of the shot, right? But you never tracked him down, you never got him. So yeah. I think that happens more than people want to admit. It's mm-hmm. awful, I know the hunters, when that does happen to them, they feel awful, generally. Yeah. But it happens, and animal, animals get away, and they've, they've been mortally wounded, but not Well, and, not and right that's, away. from the hunters that I know, or that I've, that I've talked to, and friends that I've had at work and stuff like that, they always talk a big game about, they've, they always, they chase them, they chase them, they chase them. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how much of that is talk that they don't want to admit that they mm-hmm. weren't that able way. weren't able to get yeah. to it yeah or if they what what the percentage of right. times sure like in in reality not just like fisher stories like it was this right. big i chased and, it this far and even given the benefit of the doubt right every yeah. single 100 percent of the time they try they're still not getting everyone yeah well and, and i know they're out there they're trying they're not it's not like they're shooting and just eh he's still moving he'll mm-hmm. they're, they're not just leaving it to totally. run I'm, they spend a lot of money on a tag. They spend a lot of money on ammunition yep. to get out to where they're going and all that. Yep. Yep. So it's not just the morality. It's also like the work that they've got to, to that finalize point. this. Thing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of it's inconsequential and, and, and a lot of the trash, you know, likely is too, but people just need to be more aware of, yeah. of, of, of their impacts. 
So why have all these zoos and all these organizations put in a ton of effort and money to bring condors back? Why? What what good are they? Well, they they keep the disease out of the landscape. You know, they keep the rot and the and that that goes for scavengers as a whole. So coyotes, black vultures, turkey vultures, condors, all the crows. Um, they're also amazing and i think we're, we're drawn towards the remarkable right so they're one of the largest birds Just, outside big. of a, yeah, they're big there's they're, they're not a they're not a trumpeter swan but they're they're almost as big you yeah. know they're 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 the biggest bird we got out there as yeah. far as flying raptors so um i think that's impressive to people um and, and their impact on the coast um cleaning up uh all the different, you know, the pinniped rookeries and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that we're really missing and not necessarily a niche that's being filled currently. Um, so then you get more disease and more rot and that just perpetuates more of the, of the just unhealthy uh, yeah. in nature. And so well, on and the and coast, it causes us to have to go and if we're going to manage for it, then we have to go out there and yep. drag bodies of whatever right. died out of there. Right. So and we're going to have a ton up in our area with all the whales that wash up. Oh, seriously. Hope so. Whales can come wash up and then we have four condors hanging out on top so. of it. Be like, we're sick of these condors. <laughs> so many of them. They're everywhere. So yeah, many. no, I, if we get to that point, that'd be fantastic, yeah. right? Yeah. Because um, I'm 30, hell, 37 now. I, by the time I retire, I want to see a condor in Astoria with my grandkids. Like, that's my that's my career goal. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. To see, it, to, to see condors get that far north. And, and historically, they've been all the way up into British Columbia. Mm-hmm. You know, they've existed throughout the, um, the Columbia River Gorge and into western Idaho. I mean, they've been all the way over into the eastern, eastern seaboard in Texas and Florida, you know, historically. So, um, but the well, pressures have moved them west, and I think those pressures... We're, um, we're not going to relieve those pressures. They're not going to continue to expand farther east anytime soon. But, yeah. But, but repopulate well, the west. Once, once they're here, if they're repopulated with a stable population, they're a large bird that fairly easily can soar and just... Go distance. It could, it, you could end up with vagrants across the entire country. They could. They could. Now, now, survival rate with a bird by themselves or with one and two vag- vagrants in general, yeah. Yeah, it's low. So we had a, um, a bird that we released in 2018 uh-huh. um, in northern Arizona. Flew all the way to Wyoming. Did you guys hear about that? I, yeah, Wasn't there we... one in Georgia, though? Uh-uh. I don't think so. No, I saw a report of one in Georgia, but I think it got out from somewhere. Was, Wait. Or or it was just somebody who thought it was a turkey vulture. That Maybe might have been all the time. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I, I remember I remember of seeing the, the picture of the Wyoming one um, is because they're all tagged. They're all yep. out there in the wild. So they're ta- all of ones out there tagged. So you've the picture I saw is it standing on a cliff and or standing on a rock with an obvious tag right on the shoulder. Tag. And it's like, well, there we go. No, no doubt what that yeah. is. First. <laughs> and it was in uh, it was in the medicine bow area of Wyoming. Uh huh. And it was found by a hiker that, yeah, I think they did put it on eBird. That's and, crazy. And then my phone blew up that day. And it was like, everybody was like, you know, there's a lot of this. Everybody was calling me yeah. and emails. And it was actually a bird that hatched out um, here in from Port- here? Yeah, really? from Oregon Zoo. Uh, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, except that it's a sad story. The bird didn't survive. Yeah. Um, and likely, like what like you're saying, they can disperse, they can vagrants, but that bird was up there. There's no other condors anywhere around. Yeah. Um, well, it's probably lost at that point. It, it doesn't was really. Lost. It, it likely caught a thermal and skipped Utah, right? Like yeah. it just <laughs> just kept it was, on. Yeah. Going. 
Um, and so I think that the expansion is definitely coming and we're seeing yeah. birds. We get reports um, just this year of birds that are in, in areas that they haven't been historically in, in recent times, yeah. historically since, in California. Since the beginning of the breeding right, since program. The, since we kicked this new situation off. So we know that they're expanding yeah. um, and we know that they can go from northern Arizona to Wyoming. This northern release site in, in California is literally two counties away from the, the state line to Oregon. So okay. hop, skip, and a jump and the yeah. birds will be here. So what's do, can, can you foresee a time frame when we'll have them here in like in the Columbia Gorge or in the Willamette Valley, like do you see? I think is is it on the horizon something that we can yeah, see coming up? Yeah, I mean I think the Klamath Mountains in the south, so I think you might see one in Coos Bay a lot sooner than you would see one in the gorge. Yeah, for instance. So I think that it's realistic to say that we're going to have to rewrite the the birding list for Oregon in 2021. <laughs> 2020, 2021. Yeah. I think we're going to have to add a bird to that list. That's great. Um, That'd be fantastic. Which is awesome. Yeah. Which is which is my loose main goal yeah. and then my <laughs> second like more lofty goal is just is to see is that we want to see birds up in Astoria and get yeah. them back to their home range but if we can just rewrite the the book for Oregon birding that'd be pretty slick yeah. to add California condor <laughs> back change it to used to exist exactly to occasional visitor occasional Curse visitor you, Travis. Yeah. yeah no it definitely wasn't me I won't not me not me not me I'm the and his team I'm the drop in the bucket these yeah. guys are these guys do a tremendous amount of work um I think that we will see condors uh, in Oregon by 2021. That's my that's my estimation. Yeah. I think we'll see them. If we're fortunate enough to see them in the Columbia River Gorge, I think it could be another 10 years or so. All right. To get that far and to establish, yeah, 10 to 15 years. Now there is work on a, a future release site in the western portion of uh, Idaho, Hell's Canyon, oh. along the Snake River. Mm-hmm. So if that happened, that would certainly I mean, that's help. Speed it along. Real that quick. would certainly <laughs> help get things into the gorge, yeah. Um, but I think that's a little bit farther out than um, than birds just moving themselves yeah. right now. Okay. So the very first, um, this is a, a cool story, and I'll be quick. But the yeah. very first condor that hatched out successfully uh, out of our center was released in um, uh, Big Sur, but then relocated to Pinnacles, so just inland from Big Sur in California. Okay. And that bird has subsequent, subsequently hatched out, was um, was the first to uh, sire offspring, um, going really? from a captive bird to yeah, producing, pretty cool. producing birds in the, in the wild. So it's amazing. Um, tie it back into lead, that very same bird, so the very first one to hatch out here, the mm-hmm. first one to hatch um, birds in the wild. He hatched out bird another bird this year. He sired yeah. another bird this year. But that, that adult male has been brought in for chelation uh, treatments over eight times oh since he's been out in the wild uh, for about 10 years. Wow. So he's gone through eight different chelation treatments. Um, so that's how frequent these birds are getting into lead. I, I, I read about, I didn't read that much. I read the word chelation treatments and it's about lead. So what, mm-hmm. what is the process for removing the lead from the blood? And... It's, it's horrible. It's, it's extremely invasive. Mm-hmm. Um, the birds have to be kept in a pretty small area um, so that you can catch them up twice a day. So you have to go in there and net the birds, physically restrain them twice a day, and you're basically cleaning their blood completely. It's like dialysis? Essentially. Okay. Yeah. You have to take everything out, clean it, put it back in, and it's really <laughs> hard on them. It's really hard on them. You um, have to do it twice a day? How long does the process day, take? 30 minutes to 45 minutes. And then, so it's like, time. so you have like an hour and a half of like this stressful event every day. Yeah. For how many how many days before? About a month or so. Oh my gosh. gosh. Yeah. 
And, and um, again, I'm not the expert, so yeah. I might be slightly off on some of these figures, but that's been the communication. But approximate. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's the approximate. Um, we uh, at the Oregon Zoo aren't um, fully uh, into the chelation treatment yet, but as part of our our memorandum of understanding with this new release site, we're mm -hmm. going to be anything basically north of uh, there. We're going to be kind of halfway between Oakland and Portland, right? This release site is halfway in between mm -hmm. Oakland and Portland. And so anything north of the release site is going to come our way for chelation. Anything south of the release site is going to go to Oakland for chelation. Okay. So we're going to be much more involved in the near involved, future. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right now, a lot of the big players are Los Angeles, San Diego, Oakland, and uh, Santa Barbara. Um, those birds in California, uh, those zoos in California are kind of right in the heart of it, and they receive birds regularly for accumulation treatment. That's terrible. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Well, um, we appreciate you so much for yeah. taking some time out of your day. Do you have any last comments? Uh, no, you're welcome very much. Thank <laughs> you for, for, for asking me to, to talk. No, I just want to make sure that... Um, uh, the keepers get their, their due because they do so much hard work and, and yeah. we have such amazing people. We have um, incredibly talented but also um, experienced keepers on the ground out at our Johnson Center and um, they do amazing stuff. So they're out there constantly watching the birds and knowing what to do and, and we wouldn't have any of the luck without these people that we have here in Portland and then the folks that run the other propagation centers. They really yeah. are the, the ones that are, are making this happen and it's it's amazing. And uh, yes, the birds make it easy on us, but, but that's really Quote, not unquote it. easy. Yeah, <laughs> but that's really not it, that it's the people that are doing yeah, it. Yeah, the hard work that gets put into it. Yeah, and it, it's an amazing thing and so I'm just lucky to be along for the ride. and. Uh, Super, yeah. super excited, super fortunate to be a part of it, and uh, very much looking forward to seeing the birds here in Oregon, for sure. Yes, so are we. <laughs> yeah, it would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. You got it. So that all was very fascinating, and thank yes, you again, Travis. Um, and we you know haven't been to the Oregon Zoo in a number of years um we used to go all the time when we were younger and then we moved away and went yeah, to other I zoos used all the time loosely well, you, you, I, you I went know. a lot yeah, yeah. Um, we would we would go occasionally like once every other year or oh, okay. every three years maybe yeah we were much more than that yeah it was we didn't go that often but we still went yeah and it's it's a great zoo it's it's in a big park so it's like a section of a park. It's... They were like one of the first zoos to like captive breed an elephant or something. Oh, really? I I don't know. There's something really special about Packy. Oh, okay. Yeah, Packy was, what was he? He was like 60 or something, right? He when he, when he passed away? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they have they have some pretty cool things. They just redid. Zoo things. They just redid the <laughs> elephant enclosure. So it's like much bigger. And then. It's um, like six times the size as it used to be it's yeah. gigantic which is which is awesome i don't think they increase the elephants either i don't think so. they just give them more sp space to roam yeah which and is nice they'll be working on the polar bear exhibit and the well they're working on it now yeah. as well as the, apes the primates. And, yeah primates exhibit so i'm excited to see what it looks like when all that's done it's just that location is such like or the zoo is just such a big like institution in portland like people have grown up going there and mm -hmm. bringing their families and it's something that i definitely love it's something that got me interested in wildlife was going to the zoo when i was a kid yeah. it's probably the same as it is like other in other places like probably. probably in dallas they probably feel the same way about the dallas zoo yeah. and san antonio but we grew up at the oregon zoo so yeah. it's special, special, special for us yeah. yeah yeah but it's 
it's really cool. Yeah, definitely. And we appreciate it so much, Travis. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for sitting down with us. And uh, thank you all for listening to our podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> and we'll learn something. I mean, learning something's important, too. Yeah. Um, rate, review, and subscribe us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to us. If you'd like to connect with us, please follow us at Hannah Goes Birding. And Hannah with an H. And Eric Goes Birding. Eric with a K. On Instagram. And you can also follow us on our Facebook page, Hannah and Eric Go Birding, or email us at hannahandericgobirding at gmail.com. Even tweet us at, at we go birding. Or go to our website, <laughs> gobirdingpodcast.com. Go um, tell us what you liked, tell us what you didn't like, and uh, share us with everyone you know. Sharing is caring.